0: The topic is going to be Abram's Amen, and I don't know, I don't think I'll be able to communicate it all tonight, so it may be one of those continuation things. Abram's Amen. That's Abraham before his change of name. And this is really based on Galatians 3 and Romans 4. Before I went to Florida the last time, We had gone through Romans all the way through from pretty much from one one to 3.31, and I halted at Romans 4 and did a lot of preliminary work, and this is going to be pretty much a preliminary thoughts on Romans 4, although it won't seem and feel like that at first. And it will include an intentionality analysis of Paul, an attempt to see what he was up to in that chapter, Romans 4. So uh, this will also serve as a kind of a rough re-entry from Galatians back into Romans. The series is called Better Call Paul. And the question is, does Paul present an apocalyptic vision of an all-saving Savior in Jesus Christ? A question that so far nothing has challenged an affirmative answer to that this will also serve as partially a scaffolding for future study of romans and i don't i'm not sure yet have to seek my boss on this as to whether we'll begin a series on romans or in galatians or both as the next increment of study so let's take a couple moments of silent preparation our Venango County contingent just came so we're going to just start praying right let's pray father we th- we're thankful tonight that you brought tony sadar back from his wandering in a far country as the prodigal son did and I'm grateful that you pulled him up short and said it's time to come home. So we will kill the fatted calf. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into the fulfilled Torah of freedom, which is your word. We know that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And may we experience under the Holy Spirit's ministry that freedom from sin and from the flesh and from the elements of this evil age so that we can enjoy the leisurely intake of your word, leading to the rest in our souls that comes from the assurance of your unrestricted love. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen. One of the main points I want to make tonight, I'm going to make, I decided I'm going to make it first, in case I lose you, because this is going to be, as I said, a kind of a rough re-entry into Romans. I didn't think Romans 4 was worth tackling until we hit Galatians 3, which is also notably surrounding Abraham, but with an emphasis on Abraham's seed. And the main point I wanted to make is that God's approval of Christ is our salvation. God's approval of Christ is our salvation. In fact, God's approval of Christ is the salvation of the world. That, believe it or not, is a preliminary thought for going into Romans in a deeper reading than we're used to. <clears throat> the justification by faith reading, I think, is rightly called a thin reading of Romans 4. And that's what Douglas Campbell called it, and I agree with Douglas Campbell on that. And this is a thicker reading, so it's approached from I think a, a somewhat of a complex way. But Romans 4 was arguably not Paul's attempt to show that Abraham was justified by his faith not the thin reading makes it look that way the thicker reading does not rather he continues the course of an ongoing dialectic of contradictories with this Jewish Christian teacher missionary to show that Abraham was not justified by circumcision. In other words, Romans 4 is more interested in showing that Abraham was not justified by circumcision than it is interested in showing that Abraham was justified by his own faith. Romans 4 therefore does not deviate from the course already set, especially in Romans 1:16 to 17 where the thesis statement is made Romans 3:21 to 26 one of the densest portions of scripture and then again Romans 3:27 to 31 all of these are continued the logic the rhetoric in those passages continues through Romans 4 so it continues on this course of logic And the dialectic of contradictories that justification or the deliverance enacted by God for sin enslaved humanity is by the fidelity of God's Messiah and not by human acts in accordance with Torah, including circumcision of males, including the observance of kosher dietary laws which became an issue at Antioch between Paul and Cephas including the observance of holy days in the Jewish calendar all of which as we saw last night bring them back under the elements of the cosmos again that have been bankrupted and weakened those things that once had power over us have been broken but our Willfulness, even in our liberated volition, can give those things power again over us. And that's what Paul is trying to prevent. Justification, and I'm using that word advisedly because it's not the best translation. Justification by this means, that is, obedience to Torah's strictures, never was the idea put forth by Judaism Judaism gets a bad rap on this Judaism was not a religion that put forth a justification or going to heaven by works of the law never Judaism was never based on that and that's a false and a desperately false Christian mistake It was rather the idea, this idea of a justification or a salvation by circumcision was an idea fomented by the gospel, so-called, of certain, certain Jewish Christian missionaries. Especially one particular teacher. And the teachers under his auspices, in Galatia at least, were also under the auspices of certain men in Jerusalem who Paul... Bluntly called false brothers. That's one of the main characters in the drama of Galatians 1 and 2. False brothers. False teachers. The Galatians and Paul. I like to call the Galatians the graced pagans. For upon hearing the report of the fidelity of Messiah. They received the Holy Spirit. Who ignited their faith. And brought them into Union with Christ. Now, as with the fourth gospel and Rev the Book, and I still have I'm wrapping my arms around those two previous studies, so it is with Paul's letters. There is never a disparagement or a demeaning or a, uh, any kind of violation of Jews or of the Jews as a people. Now, this is extremely important because both Paul and John have been charged and accused with anti-Semitism, which is a preposterous charge, but it's caused a lot of people to reject their writings, which is tragic. On the contrary, as Jesus says in John, and this is John's gospel, in John 4.22, salvation comes from the Jews. So far from the Jews being disparaged or defamed by John, he makes the point, when he uses the term the Jews... In a non-ironic way, he shows how lofty is that title, the Jews. And Jesus said salvation is from the Jews. And, of course, that way the salvation is of the Jews is the Messiah would be born of the Jews and he would be the Savior. Romans 9, 4, and 5 brings that out. Blend those two together then. You've got a little study right there. John 4.22, Romans 9, 4, and 5. John's use of the term the Jews as an opposition group to Jesus and to the later community of believers in Jesus Christ is not a vilification of the Jews as a people. Or of Israel as a nation. It is, again, decidedly not that. The opponents of Jesus were certain Judeans or residents of Judah who actually misrepresented the honorable title, the Jews. So Paul is John is using, and I'll stick to my guns on this, an ironic use of the word the Jews. Those who are opposing Jesus Christ. He called them ironically the Jews because that's an honorable title and they were misusing it. Those particular people against Jesus Christ. Now, going beyond what I taught in Revelation 2 9 and 3 9, that's where Jesus identified a certain group of men as Beth Shatan, the house of Satan, or the synagogue of the adversary. That sounds anti Semitic on the part of the writer of Revelation. It isn't at all that. In Revelation 2 9 in Smyrna and 3 9 in Philadelphia, it is explicitly stated that such a group consti- constituted what the Son of Man called a synagogue of Satan, and the Son of Man said explicitly of them. They say they are Jews and are not. And that in fact, they are liars and are in reality a synagogue of Satan. That's the son of man. But it doesn't end there. The prediction made by the son of man is that this synagogue of Satan would empty out. And that its members would come to the elect ones whom they once expelled and that those members of the synagogue of Satan would sit at their feet, the feet of those whom they persecuted, and recognize, Jesus said, that I loved you. That's Revelation 3.9. Now, how will they know? how will these who come from the synagogue of Satan to the churches of the elect Christians and sit there, how will they know that those churches were loved by Messiah? Because they will discover that they too are loved by Messiah as they hear the messages of the word of God. How will they know? That Jesus loved the elect ones, the members of the Church of Philadelphia, for example, in Asia Minor, because they will have discovered by sitting at their feet that he has loved them too, even those of the synagogue of Satan. There's a reason why Jesus said, Pray for those who persecute you. He might have even been thinking about the Christians praying for Saul the persecutor, because look what happened. So this is the case with Paul himself. He came out of the synagogue of Satan, as it were, and he came to the feet of the Christians, beginning with Ananias in Damascus on Straight Street. He came to the feet of Christians that he had once ravaged with the intent to destroy. And there's no doubt that he came to recognize that Jesus loved that people and that he had elected them But there's also no doubt that what Paul found as one who came from the synagogue of Satan to sit at the feet of the elect people of God, there's no doubt that Paul recognized that the same Son of Man, Jesus the Nazarene, who loved these people, loved him too. For Paul's own testimony is I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, and yet it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this body of flesh, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Son of God who loved the churches, whom Saul mercilessly persecuted, also loved Saul while he was persecuting Saul also known as Paul so it is sad that both the Johannine and the Pauline writings John and Paul's writings have been rejected by some people based on the false charge that these writings promote anti-semitism now let me let me I guess digress for a moment here because it is certainly true that a false interpretation of John and of Paul fed into a festering anti-Jewish sentiment in Western Europe that took root and then grew into a monstrous tree whose gruesome fruit proved to be the Holocaust. This alone should make those of us who seek an accurate interpretation of Paul and John tremble and indeed to proceed with fear and trembling in our task. The accusation that Paul was anti-Semitic is also proven to be preposterous when we realize that he's, he never demeans the Jews in any of his writings. And quite the contrary, he never renounced his Jewishness, Ever. In Romans, for example, he's in dialectic opposition, not with the Jew, but with a certain identifiable Jewish teacher who evidently also claimed the title Christian. Paul is not fighting against the Jew, but a Jewish Christian teacher. As it was in John's use of the Jews, which you find throughout the Gospel of John, or the Son of Man's use of a synagogue of Satan, this person does not deserve the praiseworthy title Jew. Now, why can I call that a praiseworthy title? Well, in Romans two twenty-eight and 29, there's a definite distinction between the authentic Jew whose praise is from God And the person who lays claim to that title falsely, which is evidently the fault of the teacher with whom Paul is fighting in Romans. In other words, this Jewish teacher is not a representative of Judaism nor of Christianity. Intriguingly, the enemies of Jesus in John 8 were Jewish Christians. You say, how do you come to that conclusion? Very simply from John eight thirty, many had believed in him, and the same ones who believed in him turned immediately to oppose him. How can this be? Well, how can Jewish Christians or Gentile pagan Christians for that matter be warned against crucifying the Son of God afresh? In Hebrews six four. One of the ways we do that is by thinking that our faith as a particular merit on our part justified us. That's saying Christ died for nothing, so he should do it all over again. The enemies of Jesus in John 8 then were largely Jewish Christians, and yet they opposed him immediately, citing their genetic relationship to Abraham as the basis for their freedom. They recognized him as Messiah, but then they said, but we are free because we're Abraham's children, Abraham's seed. And Jesus said, I'll give you that, you're Abraham's seed, but you're sure not acting like his kids. Because when he saw my debut, he rejoiced. But you're seeking to kill me. And of course, they shockingly said, we don't want to kill you. There's a lot of Christians you could tell that to. They would, of course, be horrified. Jesus roundly reproved these Jewish Christians by saying that true freedom is not political. But it's freedom from sin. John 8.35, 8.34 and 35. That which can only be provided by God in Christ and by Christ in God. And not by a mere hereditary association With Abraham. A Jew is a true Jew by what's inside. By a circumcision of the heart. Whose obedience is not that of the letter. But of the indwelling spirit. And participation with Christ. Romans 9 to 11. Also a passage that deserves careful exegesis. That whole section Romans 9 through 11. Puts to flight all assailants against Paul on this charge of anti-Semitism. The apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles unveils his deepest heart's desire in the very early part of Romans 9-1 and following, that his fellow Israelites would be saved, even wishing himself to be accursed from Christ if that would happen. He begins with a heartfelt grief over those of his people who have rejected Jesus Christ and ends with the profoundest expression of assurance that all of Israel will be saved. In Romans eleven twenty five and following. It's true that he writes of a sclerosis or a hardening that has happened in Israel, but he's careful to say that it is a partial one. And that it's a temporary one, a temporary sclerosis under God's providential control until the fullness of the graced pagans comes in. It's almost like a doctor stopping a heart in order to start the heart with a healthy rhythm. God permitted a sclerosis, a temporary hardening in part of Israel for a part of the time until all of the graced pagans would come in. Paul's confidence in the glorious eschatological future of all of Israel is a total confidence. It's an absolute certainty. And because all of Israel is to be saved, so in Paul's view is all of humanity, and so all of creation will be liberated and transformed. In fact, Paul has seen the wider horizon in which that God will have mercy on all of humankind, having previously imprisoned them all in disobedience in Romans 11.32, a very climactic verse in Romans. So all of this comes about in the light of the vision of an all-saving Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. By whose faithfulness all mankind received justifying life, as Romans 5.18 says, and all of creation receives its liberation from slavery to corruption. All of justifying, all of the life that justifies comes not only to humanity, but to all of creation. There's a cosmic dimension in Paul's soteriology because it's rooted in Christ. All of Paul's letters have to be read as all of John's writings and all the Bible for that matter in the light of the redemptive revelation of Jesus in his universally saving significance. These all testify of me, he said, in his resurrection. And that's what this series called Better Call Paul is all about. And so it is that Paul does not stop with Abraham as the Jewish teachers did. Instead, he goes back all the way to Adam in Romans 5 and he goes ahead to Christ. As he does in 1 Corinthians 15 also. Now look at Genesis 15. We want to see the occasion in which Abraham believed Yahweh. Or as the Hebrew would have it, amend the promise. Yahweh took Abram outside. He was already visiting with him in the tent. And he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. They're innumerable, you remember. And he said to him, so shall your seed be. Uncountable number of stars, but singular seed. Paul much, made much of that in Galatians 3.16. In other words, seed singular, that is Christ. The magnitude of these heavens, the magnitude of the uncountable number of the stars is suggestive of the magnitude of Christ. The innumerable number of the stars gestures toward the innumerable company of the redeemed. So he said to him, So shall your seed be. Yahweh gave the unconditional promise to Abraham on this occasion. And Abraham, Amen, Yahweh. The Hebrew word is Aman which comes to amen, and that's where we're going to get Abram's Amen, what it means. Is it trying to show that Abraham was justified by his personal faith, or is it continuing the logic that we are all justified by the faithfulness of Messiah? The net translation is pretty admirable here. It departs from tradition a little bit, and it says Abram, that was his name before the name change in which God breathed, another syllable into abraham's name as he did with sarai abram believed the lord yahweh and the lord considered his response of faith as proof of genuine loyalty that's pretty good j lewis martin's translation and that's one of the beauties of the commentary that he did on Galatians is that it opens up with a full translation by J. Lewis Martin um, of Galatians. He says in three six of Galatians, quoting Genesis fifteen six, things were the same with Abraham. He trusted God and as the final act in the drama by which God set Abraham fully right, God recognized Abraham's faithful trust. Now, I, th- I think both of these translations are good up to a point, because neither of these translations gives the impression that Abraham was justified by his faith, his personal faith. If Abraham was individually justified by his faith, then Romans 5:18 can't be true, which says, "Through one righteous act, the righteous act of Christ." there is life-giving justification for everyone. If there's life-giving justification for everyone through Christ's single act, and Abraham was justified instead by his own personal faith, then Christ died for nothing. Christ's obedience counts for nothing. Because Christ's faithful obedience to God was to the extent of death by crucifixion. It was for nothing. If we're justified by works, or if we're justified by our faith. Now, whether justification comes by our works, or by our faith, then Christ has died for nothing. I don't frustrate the unconditional grace of God, because if any justification comes by works, including the work of personal faith or the act of faith, as they call it, then Christ died for nothing. Unconditional grace agrees with the cross of Christ. God's approval of Christ is our salvation. So we already have that when he sees Jesus coming to be baptized, the voice breaks heaven open the Spirit descends upon him and the voice of the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He was as much as suggesting my pleasure and my approval over my Son will mean your salvation because God's approval over his Son includes the Father's approval of his Son's obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. Now, for those that have objected to this, this does not mean that our faith does not please God. That's not what I'm saying at all, nor what Paul is saying. It does please him. In fact, in Hebrews eleven six, it's the only thing that pleases him. But it does not mean that our faith is the means of our justification. Faith is approved by God for Christian living. Faith as the primary element of Christian living, which ultimately is hope, and then a faith that works by love. Faith is as the element of Christian living. We walk by faith, not by sight. Faith as the element of Christian living is effectively hope. It is hope, but it's hope in spite of what the evil age presents to us by sight. Abraham hoped against hope. He means he hoped in the sphere of hopelessness where the world and the deteriorating bodies of him and his wife spoke volumes against believing this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. In Hebrews 11.1. 1. The only time faith, which pleases God, is defined, it's defined as assurance of things hoped for. And not only that, it's the conviction of things not seen. That's Hebrews 11.1. One. By it, that is faith, it says the elders previous to the cross, the ancients, obtained a good report they obtained a good report they didn't obtain justification they obtained a good report hebrews 11:2 and abraham was among those whose faith and whose approval by god is chronicled in hebrews 11:4 to 40 you get up around 13 to 17 you're dealing with abraham And the interpretation about Abraham's faith is that God was pleased with it and that God gave Abraham a good report because of faith. But attention is then, as always happens, because the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, attention is then drawn drastically away from their faith heroism to Jesus. Looking away, af looking away from these faith heroes, including Abraham, Unto Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of faith. In other words, if we're going to look for the source of our salvation, it isn't the faith that Abraham had. It's the faithfulness that Jesus demonstrated through the cross. He endured the cross thinking very little of the shame and is now set down at the right hand of the Father. We have the whole Christ event there. The incarnation, the life of vicarious obedience, the culmination of that obedience in the extent of death by crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension or the elevation, and the enthronement at the right hand of the Father. The fact that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father is proof to me that all his enemies are going to be made a footstool for his feet, including death, for all mankind. The very enthronement of the Lamb of God at the right hand of the Father is the assurance of the salvation of all of creation. Now you might think I'm going out on a limb to say those things, but you might find that that limb is mighty strong. You might even find that it's one of the arms of the cross. I expect either to die because of my faith or to die still holding it one or the other either one is fine with me because my faith is a gift from god as yours is so yes the men and women called presbyteroi in hebrews 11:2 to 40 they obtained a good report but they didn't obtain justification by their faith justification is by messiah's faithfulness This is all a prelude to Romans 4, which has been interpreted since the Reformation as Paul giving proof of justification by faith, when it's not really that at all. The Amen of Abraham was Yahweh's approval of Abraham, it was his recognition of Abraham's trust, not the imputation of righteousness to Abraham. Now, listen carefully, this is new ground. And I would like you to turn to Second Corinthians chapter one for this. I don't think did I mention that at the beginning? If I did? Congratulations to me if I didn't. Second Corinthians chapter one. Listen carefully to these words because these, I don't even know how to word this. And that's the whole point of re-editing, editing, going over, and, and I've gone over this message and edited it several times. The last time was at six o'clock tonight before I came to you. So I'm trying to fine-tune it each time, polish it each time so that it can be articulated because I'm talking about things that are hard to articulate here. So listen carefully. God's, the amen of Abraham was Yahweh's approval of Abraham when when he amened the promise, the unconditional promise. It was God's recognition of Abraham's trust, not the imputation of righteousness to Abraham. Christ is the yes, Y-E-S, to all of the promises of God. Therefore, God's approval of Abram's Amen, listen carefully, God's approval of Abram's Amen was Yahweh's approval of Christ. Or, for those of us who know the New Testament, the Father's approval. Of his only begotten son. Matthew three seventeen seventeen five. Yahweh pronounced the promise. Which finds its yes. And it's amen. In God's son. And one of the rare times Paul calls him the son of God. Galatians 220. Is one of them. Here's another in 2nd Corinthians 119. My translation. For the son of God Jesus Christ. Who is proclaimed among you by us. Paul says by me and Silas and Timothy did not become yes and no on the contrary. Yes has come about in him In verse 20 for every one of God's promises are yes in him. Therefore through him is the amen for God's glory through us. Through him is the amen for God's glory through us. Through him, Jesus Christ, was Abram's amen to the glory of God. So even as the Holy Spirit in us cries out, Abba, Father, so he cries out amen to the promises of God. The amen here is very important because among the promises that Jesus is the yes and amen to is the promise made to Abraham and to his seed, singular, Christ, that in your seed all the nations will be blessed. The promise is unconditional. The horizon is universal. Among the promises of God then, and even prominent among them, as we've learned in Galatians 3.8, is the promise that God made to Abraham. The promise that in his seat all the nations would be blessed. Abram simply amended the promise. Yahweh approved Abram's Amen because Abram's Amen was spoken as Paul's Amen was spoken and as ours is spoken through Christ for God's glory because Christ is the yes. Christ is God's great big yes toward all humankind, toward all of creation. It's his great big affirmation of his love. The affirmation of all of God's promises. What is being accentuated then in Romans 4, that chapter, as well as in Galatians 3, as well as in Genesis fifteen six? is not Abraham, the accent doesn't fall on him. Nor does it fall on Abraham's faith. Now, the Jewish teachers that were Christian missionaries misleading the graced pagans in Galatia, they wanted them to think that Abraham was justified when he was circumcised in Genesis seventeen, eight, and following, which is 13 years after this. And so they did put the accent on Abraham. Paul put the accent on Christ. They put the accent on Abraham. Paul put the accent on Christ. So Romans 4, Galatians 3, Genesis 15, 6 is not Abraham. The accent is not Abraham or Abraham's faith, but Christ and Christ's fidelity by which all the promises of God are affirmed. It is Christ's fidelity against the human act of circumcision that is continued in this dialectic of contradictories throughout Romans 4, as well as in Galatians. Abram's amen was elicited by the promise that Yahweh made, and thus by the Spirit of God. Now, it's important that we observe in Galatians 1.5 Very interestingly, that after the proclamation that Christ died for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, Christ died for our sins, that's a tradition that Paul received already. It was a tradition handed down to him. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Isaiah 53 are the scriptures that he's speaking of. That came down to him. What did not come down to him by tradition but was revealed to him by an apocalypse of Jesus Christ is that he died for our sins in order to rescue us or deliver us from this present evil age. If Paul ever wanted to talk about hell, he should have right there. But he never did. He never mentioned a thing called hell. That sets him apart from a lot of preachers today. But he said the salvation is from the present evil age and from the elements of the cosmos, which are sin, flesh, death, principalities and powers, beings who are no re- not really gods, beings behind the idols that people worship, we're free from that. So Abraham's amen was elicited by the promise and thus by the Spirit of God. It's important that we observe in Galatians 1 5, then, after Paul's proclamation that Christ died for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God our Father. What is the will of God our Father? Well, we know that from Ephesians 1 9. The will of God the Father is the recapitulation of all things in Christ. So according to the will of God our Father, he delivers us from this present evil age. According to the will of God the Father, who wills that everything ends up being recapitulated in Christ. Paul then adds, to whom belongs the glory forever and ever. And then he says, Amen. He makes the readers of this epistle say amen. He even makes the Galatian recipients of this epistle say amen. It's like he brings them right back to where they belong in the amen that's elicited by this gospel message. They're already being saved from that defection right in verse 5 by their participation in the amen. Which is a participation in Christ who is the amen to all the promises of God. So the apostle solemnly affirms the truth of the apocalyptic gospel and follows up with a doxology to God our Father, then signs off with an amen. All of that is significant stuff in Galatians 1.5. God the Father receives the glory through Jesus Christ, his Son. This is also the case in Philippians 2 9 to 11 declaration. The universal acclamation of Jesus as Lord, or more specifically, of Yahweh as Yeshua. That whole universal acclamation, which is going on now, even in this world among Christians, in its proleptic form. The universal acclamation of Jesus as Lord is, in effect, a universal amen to the glory of God the Father. So the promise or promises, plural, made in Genesis 12 and reiterated in Genesis 13, 15, and Genesis 22 were not dependent on circumcision, but on the faithfulness of the Son of God. They were not dependent on Abraham's circumcision, nor were they dependent on Abraham's faith. But on Messiah's fidelity, in which Abram did participate and was approved for that. that's why though we aren't justified by faith we can be approved by a life of faithfulness so well done good and faithful servant can be what we hear when we face our Lord Jesus Christ let me say this again we're ready to close the promise or promises made in Genesis 12 and then in Genesis chapter 13 and reiterated in 15 5 and then twenty two eighteen. 18 those promises or that promise spoken many times were not dependent on circumcision but on the faithfulness of the Son of God. Paul speaks ironically of the circumcision of Christ elsewhere, Colossians 2.11, but that's another subject. These promises were dependent on the mediation of Jesus Christ, on the faithfulness of the Son of God, who in effect spoke the amen to those promises for all of humanity. Jesus Christ spoke the amen. He is the living word. He became flesh. He was the spoken amen to all the promises of God, spoken for all of mankind. That's why Abram's Amen was approved by God or credited with righteousness. It was God's approval of Christ. God's approval of Christ is our salvation. God's approval of Christ is the salvation of the world. Even. Of the synagogue of Satan. Even. Of the universal creation. This is my son. In whom I am well pleased. God's approval of his son. Includes. God's hearty approval. Of his son's. Obedience. To the extent of death by crucifixion. A death. For our sins. For the scripture says. He was handed over. And not only that he handed himself over to death for our sins and was raised for our justification says Romans 4:25 in the climactic verse of Romans 4 our justification springs from Christ's resurrection which was God's reward to his righteous one God's reward to his righteous one the righteous one being Jesus Christ was resurrection our salvation is God's reward of Christ. For in John 17:2, the Father has given me authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all those to whom He has given me, which is all flesh. things that have gone on between the Father and the Son. We ought to listen in to those things. We will need this depth of assurance. For the times to come in which the whole world and all that happens on the earth seems to put the lie to it. That's when faith is tested. That's when the perseverance of the saints is called for. I think we saw that in Revelation 13, 12 and Revelation 14, 13. I think we saw that there. Our justification springs from Christ's resurrection, which was God's reward of his righteous one for his perfect obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. We are saved by obedience, Christ's obedience. We are saved, in fact, we could even say by circumcision. By the circumcision of Christ whereby he put off the body of flesh in in the cross. Jesus is the beloved of God. When you speak of a beloved and a lover, the beloved is in the lover. That's why... The beloved is loved by the lover because the beloved is in the lover. If you love someone, they are in you. They are in your thoughts. They're in your mind. They're in your heart. And Jesus said, believe me that I am in my father. Then he said, believe me that my father is in me. And I love the father. And therefore, let's get going from this place. The prince of this world is coming, he said to his disciples. He has nothing in common with me. But because I love my father, I'm going from here. To where? To the cross. The beloved is in the lover. And the lover is in the beloved. And so we are loved by God. We are loved by Christ. Nothing separates us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And because salvation is participation, the greatest assurance is that there'll never be separation. Romans 8:39. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus is the sum total of Paul's theology. Again, the beloved is in the lover and the lover is in the beloved and we are graced out in the beloved says Ephesians 1 6. We are graced pagans in the beloved. We are in the beloved because he is the lover of our souls and therefore we are in him. God was in Christ. Christ. Reconciling the world to himself believe me that my father is in me now He said in John fourteen eleven, and the father was in him on the cross For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself God made Christ to be for us wisdom even righteousness Sanctification and redemption in first 1 Corinthians 130 So that no flesh can glory in his presence even though all flesh is the beneficiary of his unconditional grace. And for this, we thank you father. And we thank you that you have allowed because of the attentiveness that you have placed in your people, this whole message to be delivered tonight instead of over the course of many nights. And I do thank you for the attentiveness of this congregation because that attentiveness is also the benefit of your grace to us. If we're attentive, it's because you've gifted us with attentiveness. If we have faith, it's because you have elicited that faith. And if we remain faithful unto death, it will be because we have the perseverance of Jesus.